First of all, thanks for thank you uh, to Diane and Christopher for organizing this wonderful conference. And I think that what's particularly exciting about it is getting a small group of people who are all working on very similar questions together to talk about something that can be really exciting. Um, but before we do that, I just wanted to get a sense from you guys about um, what your empirical understanding is of the topic that I'm going to address. I'm going to look at uh, lobbying. And what lobbying is in a governmental context varies quite a bit from place to place. What is it, what is it that you guys uh, believe that lobbyists do if they do anything? What do lobbyists do? Yeah, I've been looking for like two or three answers. What, what do lobbyists do? Talk. Or how do you understand they try, try to get their interests incorporated into in legislation. So lobbyists are trying to get their interests incorporated in legislation by talking. Okay, so does that work? Does by, that work? By does persuasion or by exchange? Uh, yeah. So basically we're going to talk about people who come in and they don't have any, these are people that don't have any decision-making power, but rather they're people that they're able to come in and talk. Um, but it doesn't make much sense to me how that matters because you know, I would think that the way that decisions are made is there's some authoritative person with decision-making power that comes in and says, we're going to make a decision, right? Or a legislative body reaches a conclusion. Um, or um, a minister makes a bureaucratic decision. But lobbyists, they just talk. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. Couldn't they do it like um, organizations do press releases to influence the news? Give So just talking. Talk, not talk, talk. Yeah, I mean, actually, like, write up basically what they want and hand it to the person and say, you know, you should put this in. You know, it's not precisely talk, right? They could actually write the legislation and hope that somebody sticks it in to the, the actual document. It doesn't make much sense to me how that, how that matters, how that works. Um, okay, now, all right, so your understanding is the same as mine, right? Which is this is very nebulous, kind of difficult to understand process that seems to be. But I disagree. I mean, there are clearly two strains explaining lobbying power. One is information. So you simply change the information set of political agent. You can do this by talking. We have a paper on this. And okay. the, the second is uh, the resource exchange. So you are providing resources, yeah. and over exchange, you get access to political decision making because you provide some kind of resources, for example, political support. So this is clear. And, uh, and and even simple talking, I mean, if it's not only white noise, and um, it has an impact um, if it change information sets of agents because they have to make decisions under uncertainty, so they need definitely information, and this is how the influence comes. And it's also okay. what he said because by talking and changing information set of voters, that also has an impact of politicians as far as they know, because if the attitude of the voter is changed, true or not, these are the people who are going to vote for me, so I have to. Adapt to whatever my voter thinks. So okay. it's talking is powerful. So I definitely disagree. Okay. All right. Good. Um, so there is a there's a real effect of lobbying, right? So there is a there's a change in coalitional structures. There's potentially um, a change in what kind of information politicians have. Yeah, uh, but then there's also potentially a talk element to it as well which maybe is more nebulous and unclear. But indeed, that there's also resource exchange. Uh, so mm -hmm. 
as soon as the Netherlands are speaking about lowering the salaries of presidents, Shell immediately threatened that the headquarter would be shifted to Great Britain. So, uh, uh, so you you give certain resources in exchange for certain papers in terms of opening markets or closing markets or whatsoever. So this so is not only talking. So <laughs> who is it then that are the who is it that becomes the really are the important lobbyists then? Those lobbyists who are able to affect the opportunities and constraints of the conditions to make things work. But how do we know who they are? We will see these afternoon. I think that these questions are very, um, I think they're very difficult to sort out empirically. And I mean, I'm not, I'm just sort of laying this out and trying to understand the different points of view. Um, but there is some kind of network process of disseminating information, of trying to exchange resources. Um, but none of this is happening in a clearly defined centralized way. There isn't a centralized decision maker. There isn't something authoritative. It's not the same as an institutional actor, a court, uh, a parliament, um, an executive making a decision. Um, but rather, there's informal processes of communication, of information, of coalition formation, of exchange. And it's through these informal processes that some actors come out to be very, come to be very important, and others turn out not to be very important. Some lobbyists, um, some lobbyists are absolutely critical to the way that democracies work. Some lab lobbyists have enormous amounts of political power, more than elected, than elected officials. Others, that are not at all, right? So how do we know who it is that is going to be the important actor, and how do we know that who is it that's not going to be the important actor? It's sort of the, it's, it's the thing to be determined. So I'm going to address this by um, taking Franz's uh, suggestion from the previous paper, and I'm going to completely skirt the issue of power, right? And I'm going to do this by, instead of focusing on power, look at influence reputation. Because it may be that power is not something, I, when I try to wrap my mind around whether lobbyists can, can have power and whether they can affect public policy, when I think about that, that becomes a very intractable question in a lot of ways. But I can make that a lot more tractable by talking about influence reputation and trying to understand not whether uh, lobbyists actually do change the policy process, but whether who it is that develops the reputation for actually being able to do it, and who is it that doesn't develop such a reputation. So this paper will be about understanding how those reputations are constructed in networks. Right? That is what I'm, that's what I'm going to focus on. <coughs> okay. So in the world of lobbying, reputation is especially important. Um, because, in fact, lobbyists have very little that's tangible to offer, right? Even if they do have, they have some, let's say I say I have uh, valuable information, uh, how do you know if it's valuable or not, right? It would be hard to judge it in advance whether it's valuable. Um, so because of that, uh, this exchange of sensitive information is key. Like I'm always, if I'm a lobbyist and I'm in a legislature, I'm always claiming that I have the key piece of information. If you will just trust me, if you will trust me, then I will deliver you the key piece of information which will help you win the legislative battle. The problem is that there are 100 or 200 other people that are trying to deliver that same piece of information, that claim that they have that particular piece of information. Um, and so who do you believe and who do you not believe? I mean, clearly some people 
do have that information, others don't. Um, but vitally, this does seem to matter. It has the potential to influence legislative outcomes, but it's not clear how. Um, so what I would argue is that one way to know sort of where to get your information is, um, is, uh, is influence reputation, right? So it may be that maybe all of you are lobbyists and you're all trying to reach me with a piece of information. Um, well, who has, but I, I don't have time to meet with all of you, right? And I also don't want to do the reputation damage that could occur to me if I meet with all of you. I might have time to meet with one or two of you, right? But I only want to meet with those of you that, that have the right piece of information, right? Who, who, it is that is, who it is that's going to be able to really give me what I need. And I'm going to have to rely on your reputation, right? So I know that Christian, he has information. He has a reputation for that influence. And so the, the negotiation, well, I assume you seem to, right? I mean, you seem to be the influential person, right? So I'm going to go to you. Right? And not go to other people. So, but how does it how does it become the case that it's Christian and uh, not Diane? Right? How do we know who it is? Um, and so it depends on this perception, it depends on local knowledge. Maybe the reason why I think it's Christian is because I know Christian. And I thought, well, it seems like he seems to be around, so maybe he's the one, right, that has this information. So it's this kind of local knowledge that varies from context to context that seems to make the difference. Um, and so part of, what, part of the way that this question has been approached in the past is that uh, scholars have looked at the idea that there are certain actors in the policy process that do have reputation, and that this is a very group-centered um, idea that uh, groups develop reputations based on certain resources that they put into the policy process. So, they invest in, they, for example, they acquire a lot of money, or they acquire a lot of information, or they acquire a lot of expertise. They acquire these individual level attributes. And through acquiring these individual level attributes, they're able to obtain re reputation. But if we take seriously the social construction of reputation, then we need to think seriously about how uh, that interaction in the policy process affects the construction of reputation. That is, that Christian becomes important not just because he's the lobbyist that has the most money, or the lobbyist that has the most expertise, or the lobbyist that um, has the most experience, but rather he's built this reputation through interacting with other people, and that that is how I know that I want to go to him to get the information that I need. Okay. So one way that this occurs is through um, not just interacting in one particular network, but in interacting between different kinds of networks and moving, moving within different circles. And so there are different, different ways in which we can conceptualize and understand these arenas that he moves in. Uh, one is that he can move, you can move in this arena of direct communication, uh, arenas of talking directly to people and trying to persuade them of your point of view. Another is by participating in coalitions. So joining not one-on-one -on -one with people, but rather in larger groups in which provide a setting for you to, um, to advance your, your issues. Also is just simply becoming known in a particular issue area. So being someone who works on healthcare, or someone who works on transportation, or someone who works on education policy. Finally, it may be more general, it may be the particular field that you work in in a, in a, in a broader way. So there are different ways of conceptualizing and understanding networks 
that there's not one simple particular kind of network, but multiple networks interacting with one another. And these, affect, these relationships affect the way that lobbyists think about which interest groups are influential. So I might think of lobbyists as being influential because they're in the same expertise area as I am. They both do transportation. Or I might think of them as influential because I've had direct interaction with them. Or I might think of them as influential because they're in certain key coalitions. There are a variety of ways in which these networks might develop. Okay. So in order to get at this, I looked at this in the American context. And I looked at uh, United States health policy lobbying groups between 2002 and 2003. And I began with data on a census of interest groups testifying before Congress, lobbying on health issues, and those that had been examined in uh, previous research. And at this stage of the work, I looked at about 1,000 different interest groups, and actually about 1,200. And from this set of 1,000, I selected 171 interest groups that I believed to be, that I suspected to believe to be, based on their individual level characteristics, what were the most influential groups in this arena, 171 of them. And my research design was to attempt to do direct interviews with all of these groups. Um, and when I, when I went to do these interviews, what I did was I tried to understand their participation in a variety of kinds of networks. And I did this with one-on-one -on -one interviews, and I showed them. Um, so this is, this is, a, this is a partial list. I had a list of 171. Um, and I showed them cards and asked them who it, was they inter who it was that they interacted with. So I might be interacting with someone from the American Diabetes Association, and then effectively I would ask them, did you have contact with the American Association of Colleges of Nursing? Did you have association with the Colleges of Pharmacy, the Schools of Public Health, the Medical Library Association, the Association, the Arthritis Foundation? Right? So I asked them directly about their communication. I asked them directly about which I showed them a list of coalitions. Were you a part of the Alliance for Specialty Medicine? Were you a part of the Campaign for Medical Research, the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, et cetera? So which coalitions were you a part of? Which issues did you work on? Did you work on biotechnology? Did you work on cancer? Did you work on community health centers? Did you work on the uh, Food and Drug Administration? What were the issues that you worked on? And then also I had a predetermined coding of what field they were in. Were they veterans organizations? Were they um, medical professionals? Were they um, labor unions, et cetera? Okay. And this was how I measured the, the, um, the networks. So I was able to do interviews with uh, 168 of the 107. Good question. Okay, how did I select the issues? And also the 171. Why would you include the 171, not the others? Okay, excellent questions. Uh, in response to your first question, what I did was I used an authoritative source of, um, of, of information about policy issues that were active. I looked at um, Congressional Quarterly Weekly, which is a, a, um, a trade journal in the United States that uh, monitors what's going on in Congress. And I looked at um, all of the issues that were um, raised on, in health policy in Congress in a five-year period. And I tried to come up with a system of categories that, that was a good reflection of the, um, of the universe of potential issue areas. So I came up with about 40 different categories. Now, I realized that the structure of these networks does depend on I could have come up with 120. I could have come up with 10. 
And the way that you draw these boundaries does affect the structure of the issue. So there, that is consequential. And why the 171? Well, the reason why I selected only 171 was because it was important for me to actually, I was trying to understand the actual social construction of interest group of, of reputation. So it had to be, these had to be people that I could actually talk to, right? These were people that I had to actually meet. And I couldn't meet a, a thousand people, right? But moreover, if I had, let's say I had a thousand people on my list, right, and I sat down, and we're going to talk about, you know, at least a thousand people, yes? I'm going to show you a list of the thousand people you know. And we're going to go through that list, okay? Is that, you want to do that this afternoon? No, I can understand you can yeah. make some selection. Right. But yeah, so we have to get down, we have to get down to be a below a thousand, right? Um, and then what we, what we want the list to be long enough that we, we, we leave open the possibility of a wide number of different groups that you might not expect potentially to come up as influential, but we need it to be short enough that someone could actually sit through it. And actually, I found that this list was probably about too long. This was 171 groups makes for about four pages, and I found that people start getting fatigued in the fourth page. So probably a, a better length would probably be about 120. Sorry, is it that, uh, was it the question what are the selection criteria? So yeah. what's the, the selection criteria? Um, one criteria was that they had been used in a previous study. So you know the um, Lauman and Nope organizational state book, right? That they just selected by Lauman and Nope, right? Lauman was one of my professors, he's a good guy, seems like a good reason, right? Um, a second was uh, Ed Lauman. Um, second was how much money did they spend on lobbying? Uh, third was how frequently did they testify on Capitol Hill? And um, a fourth was I also had a, uh, panel, of, a panel of experts that I, that I consulted on the list. And I used these four criteria together. And basically what I did was I tried to come up with a list that I thought were 171 good candidates for which were the most influential groups. And there were probably a couple groups that I would have liked. I should, in, after having done the study, a couple of groups that should have been included that weren't, that were, and, and, and then there were also a couple of other groups that were included but could have been excluded. You know, so there were probably 30 or 40 groups on my list on. that were not that important. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So when I go ahead and do this, um, and I did this, I do this survey, I'm able to map out the influence reputation network. And what we see is that there are some groups that are um, really clearly influential, that, ev that sort of everyone agrees is, are influential. So this is, this is the network of who you, when I ask you who you think is influential, who do you say is influential? Um, and so if you're in the center of this network, that basically means that everyone is saying that you're influential. So the kind of groups that you see there are ones that would not be surprising at all. Um, the business community, chamber of commerce, pharmaceutical manufacturers, medical doctors, no surprise there. We wouldn't have needed to do a medical, we wouldn't have needed to do a network analysis to understand the groups that are at the center. The interesting part of this study is looking not there, but at trying to understand these peripheral communities. Because what's going on here is if you're over here, it's there's a group of people that are all saying that each other are influential, but nobody else in the network is saying that they're influential, right? So these guys over here 
are all saying each other are influential. These guys over here are all saying each other are influential, and so on and so forth, even though there's not uniform agreement. In other words, it's not just that I'm the most powerful actor, I'm the pharmaceutical industry, but rather that I'm some smaller actor, maybe I'm the veterans, I'm the veterans organization. Five minutes? Okay. Um, so how is it that, that those reputations are determined? Okay. So what we do is we use uh, exponential random graph model, um, and we use constraints for 167 possible, 167 possible nodes. And we ask the question of what explains whether interest groups cite one another as especially influential and consequential. Okay. Starting with a baseline model, uh, just using in, just using group level covariates, information that we have at the group level about who is influential. Uh, we look at uh, traditional ex traditional explanations for uh, which are the influential groups, depending on how much money they spend on lobbying, whether they do their lobbying at the grassroots, whether they have a um, tilting to a particular political party, uh, whether they testify before Congress, whether they spend money on campaigns, whether they directly advertise <coughs> to the public, um, whether they do it within um, the within the capital city, uh, the age of the organization, where they locate their office, and also um, about some where, they're, where they are in my survey. So how does the survey instrument affect their result? And what we find is that a lot of the results from this, the standard literature also are borne out. But then we add to this and go ahead and say, all right, well, let's go ahead and add to this um, networks and add the multiplexity of networks and see if that matters. And so I add these four different measures of network, these four different kinds of networks, communication, co-membership, issue overlap, and field memberships. And we find that when we add these network measures, that that adds to our explanation of how interest groups cite one another as influential. Although it doesn't reverse the previous understandings that we have from the literature. It doesn't tell us that the old explanations that we have don't matter anymore. But then there's an additional level to this, which is that networks are endogenously constructed. So it isn't just that, the net, that uh, people are looking to one another within the network, but the structure of the network feeds back upon the, on itself. And there are various measures of that you can use in an exponential random graph model, mutual ties, uh, three stars, triangles, and so on and so forth. And we see that even once we account for this endogenous formation, that we still have the multiplexity of networks still mattering, and we have these individual level of covariance mattering. Okay, so in conclusion, um, basically what the results show is that the group level covariates do a good job of helping us, they still do a good job of helping us understand reputation. But there's beyond that, there's still a social construction process that is significant and relevant and is often not accounted for in these studies. Um, once we create a fully specified network, one that also includes the endogenous network formation, that doesn't alter the conclusions that we draw from the data. But yet, still the area to be un that is unexplored by this is this model can't really get at the endogenous process of network formation. So it's difficult to say, for example, if you go back to the model, you know, and you have communication, let's say, who you talk to, who you communicate with, affects with whom you form coalitions. Um, or what issues you work on affects who you communicate with. 
there's really isn't a way, given the data that I have, to sort out these causal directions. So I can't, I can't draw arrows here. I can't draw causal arrows. But what I can say is that when we look at these overlapping networks, that we seem to be detecting clear evidence that reputation formation is not just a matter of individual level, group level attributes, but it's also a matter of how you work with people and who you're talking to in the policy process. Thank you, Michael. There's some minutes left for questions. If you also test a very simple model as baseline model in which you use in degree as a simple reputation index, because now you oh. capture the whole structure of the network, you can compare what happens if you use reputation to the number of times with in degree compared with a model in which you add to the complexity right. of the whole network structure. Right. Yeah, I mean you would get very you would get similar um, you'd get similar results if you did that. I mean I just began from I mean I guess you could begin the other way. You could begin with the network structure and then say assume that network structure matters and then add to that. I did it the re the way I presented it is the reverse because you'd get very similar you'd get very similar results if you did that. But how did you measure reputation? Yeah. I mean you, you I think yeah. you used to integrate. Right, we use yeah. right. Um, well, you, you well, it's not. It's not. In, it's actually. It's not in degree. So reputation in this particular case is who. It's not the number of times you're cited, but, but you rather mean? it's just who cites you. So it's the Hubble index. So what we're explaining is it's not actually. It's not an index. It's just a zero one. It's just what I'm explaining is why. Why do I cite? Why do I cite person A instead of person B? So when so basically exponential random graph model, you you estimated the, the probability to, to have a tie, right? Yes, the probability of having a tie. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, a tie yeah. comes up, so I'm explaining every single one of those times. But then 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 it's not the same. Then one can use the integral. Yeah. So, but then let's say the for instance the communication effect is over uh, citing a communication relation with the one you also judge to be influential. Can you repeat the question? So, um, how does the communication effect, for instance, work? Uh, the interpretation. Yeah. The interpretation of the effect would be that I'm more <laughs> likely to cite someone as influential if I communicate with them. Right. right. So I might simply believe that, you know, when I, you know, so who is influential? Like, if, let's say you come to me and you ask me, who are the influential people? Well, the first thing you might think of, well, I talk to Bill, right. or I, or I talk to uh, Jurgen, and he must be influential, right? So there is an effect. It may be that this person is not really influential. They don't really have influence over the policy process, but they seem to be because I talk to them, right? Which is an explanation for why you've got, let's say, the disabled veterans of America saying that the paralyzed veterans of America are very influential. Well, it's not because the paralyzed veterans of America are not dictating American health policy. But to the disabled veterans of America, it seems that way. Yeah, I understand. But, um, one of the things is more complexity, right? That's mm -hmm. But now you have them as four separate parameters. Right. Right? The multiplexity. So now it's, they, they're basically in competition with each other in, in the model. So the yeah. complexity would imply more like a sum of those things or something like that. It's difficult to sort this out. I mean, what we would, it, it, I think it's, it would be difficult to estimate a model which fairly put them in competition with each other. Like, so ideally what you'd like to be able to say is, you know, it is one versus the other. 
You know, so you can think about kind of a classic multiplexity model, and you've got economic ties, social ties, and let's say, um, let's say, uh, let's say uh, kinship ties, right? So what is it? Is it social and economic, or is it social and kinship? You know, what kind of ties? Is, what kind of ties are they that are mattering? The problem is that there's an endogenous process of tie formation in this particular case, which is that I form coalitions with people that I talk to. And I talk to people with whom I form coalitions. So it'd be very so I think that it's probably wiser for me to not try to put them in competition with one. So I just want to make sure I understand. So so it's a dummy variable, yes, no. You communicated with the same person that you mentioned, influential. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean you could just uh, I mean another way to do your model is you just add up the total number of mentions across each of those networks and say so. It's uh, you know your network. It's a value network, which is influence plus communication plus because you're assuming they're all kind of a, uh, different indicators of of influence, and then and then you just do your your ergum and your dependent variables, the value network essentially. That's, that's a good idea. Even if that's yeah, if that's, that's a good possible. idea. And then, and then you know, I, for me, the endogeneity part's not that important. I mean, they're they're all measurements. They're, you know, if you, if you think they're influential, you talk to them. If you talk to them, they maybe become more influential. So who cares? Just take all that, say it's all measurements of the same thing, and then focus on your attributes and your network structural characteristics. And, and I think you can make your point without having to uh, grapple with that endogeneity. That's a, that's a good idea. Yeah. Last question, and then we stop for having at least a little bit of break, and then we have a very long session. Um, well, basically, I think it's very interesting. And uh, what basically what you are showing with this exponential graph model is that reputation is a social process and that the, the social structure has an impact on, on the perceived power, which is reputation. And that's news to the people who study this subject. I that may not, be, may, not be news, it may not be news to us. No, but, uh, but it's if, definitely news to if the If you would tell this to Frank Papi or Ed Lauman, one of the pioneers of this, I would think it would be news, but they would love this exponential random graph model, having a statistical model which sorts this out. But it's definitely, uh, I don't think it's news, but I, I like this part, so, so I think it's, it's an interesting part. Uh, but uh, especially applying this exponential random graph model to really bring some quantitative effects to, to these things. But uh, on the other side, I think, uh, and that's my question, you agree, and um, that uh, this is not a test for where you started, right? I, I had the feeling that in the beginning you want to sell the idea that um, influence is a self-fulfilling prophecy. So basically, this reputation of influence, there is an impact, not perfectly, but there is an impact, which makes sense of social structure, right? It's a perception. And so yeah. the perception is a collective process somehow, and we see that the structure matters. But on the other side, if you use reputation measures, what we did, and to, as a predictor of real power, I mean, real power is you can measure power differently in a way, and really the capacity in real decisions to get their own position through into the policy or into the legislation. So if you, if you do this and then you use this kind of power, and of course, also not true measured, I have to admit, but completely differently measured, and then you also use uh, reputational power as a predictor, then it's very often a poor prediction. So it's not a math. 
image. So then the question is to what extent you think that your results, you also can use that structure really matters also for power, and not only for the perception of power. Right, okay, good question. Um, first of all, I've already, I wrote an article where I, I answered that for this particular data set. Um, and basically, you do, I do a case study method. And I look at a particular decision that was made um, in 2003 about changing the American healthcare system. And I look at who the, I, I did in-depth, basically the method was I did in-depth interviews with key decision makers and talked to them about who it was that really swayed, that who it was that really swayed the process. Um, and in some cases, these were the, um, the central actors, so the, uh, the Older People's Association, the American Association of Retired Persons, um, the American Medical Association, so these kind of central actors made a difference. But also it was uh, more peripheral actors. So um, the, you know, some groups, some ad hoc coalitions which had been uh, created or groups which had uh, ties to a particular constituency that were relevant. So I guess what I would say is when you look at actual, in the United States at least, when you look at actual decision making, you see that these reputational matters, that these, repu that these reputational issues seem to be correlated with these big questions of power, but yet the process is so conditional that there's always some kind of stochastic element which is very situational. So I would say that it, in other words, if you want to know who, if you want to know on average who the most influential actors are over time, this will do a good job of answering that question. If you want to know in a particular case who is going to have power over the outcome, you also need to know a lot about the contingent events of that time. And, 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 and that may be unpredictable based on these types of reputation. But the question was more on about the theory. I think we have to what extent you also can, can construct true power or influence, um, um, including network structure. What you showed is that in the perception depends on network structure of something. And then you answered, it's not that bad, and I agree, for the true thing. But my question was, to what extent the true thing depends on network structure? Can I take your answer private? Can I give yes, your answer sure. privately? Yeah. Let me thank Michael again. Thank you.